Coming up on Philosophy Talk, time for summer reading. After 500 episodes, we were wondering, what exactly is time anyway? Time is not one thing. It's a layer of things. Physicist Carlo Rivelli, author of The Order of Time. Time definitely does not work in the way we usually think about it. The state incarcerates people. The state can make deadlines and waiting periods. Political scientist Elizabeth Cohen, author of The Political Value of Time. Those are direct relationships in which the state makes the demand on the time of the citizen. Hans wanted more time. Hans thought we had time. Poet and essayist Jane Hirschfield, author of Ledger. Transience and perishability, they are simply among our most central perplexities. What books will you take time to read this summer? The 500th episode of Philosophy Talk. Time for a summer reading list. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ray Briggs. And I'm Josh Landy. We're coming to you from our respective shelters in place via the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where I teach philosophy, and Josh directs the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today, it's our annual summer reading list, and it's about time. Right. Summer reading on the subject of time. Today's show, if you can believe it, is the 500th episode of Philosophy Talk. That got us thinking about the nature of time and what we might read about it over the summer. So we asked a poet, a physicist, a political scientist, and a philosopher who've all written about time to help us think more about this timeless topic. And to get us started, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Holly J. McDeed, in search of lost time inside the Bay Area rapid transit system. She files this report. Reading Marcel Proust can be difficult, no matter how much spare time you have. Take this Monty Python sketch, for example. As you may remember, each contestant has to give a brief summary of Proust's a la recherche du temps perdu, once in a swimsuit and once in evening dress. In this sketch, finalists compete in the All England Summarized Proust competition. The first contestant attempts to describe Proust's work as tales of the irrevocability of time lost, the forfeiture of innocence through experience, the reinstallment of extra-temporal values of time regained. In other words, the novel is both optimistic and set within the context of a humane religious experience, restating as it does the concept of intemporality. In the first volume, Swan, the family friend. Then he runs out of time, which, if you did want to summarize Proust, is not a bad place to begin. Time is, after all, a major theme of his seven-volume masterwork. Je pouvais aller jusqu'au porche de Saint-André-des-Champs. Jamais ne s'y trouvait la paysanne que je ne sais pas manquer d'y rencontrer. That's Natalie Vanderlinden, reading from the first volume of In Search of Lost Time. She's from Belgium and lives in San Francisco. She set out to read all of Proust because she was looking to be transported. C'était sans espoir que mon attention s'attachait. It started with a desire to really uh, reconnect with my culture. Who I am is the language I speak. And so she began. I read the book in 19 hours uh, with just interruption for drinking tea or eating a piece of orange or using the bathroom. Now, she says, the only proof she has that this happened at all is that it transformed her. It was like existing in multiple places at once. After the, the performance, I was still not sure where I was. I was waiting so much for some part of the story to come. And it was in the middle of the night. I was thinking, did I dream that part? Did I dream it? But no, it's because the part I was thinking about is in the second novel. The goal was to experience the words physically, following every story, every memory, the twists and turns of time, and then later on the bumps and screeches of subway trains. 10 car train for San Francisco Airport in nine minutes. She decided to bring the experience of Proust to the commuters of San Francisco. As she read out loud in French, passengers stopped to listen for brief moments. Et ce n'était plus d'allégresse. C'était de rage que je frappais les arbres du bois de Roussainville. It's like a big poem to me. It's so beautiful that it's, you can actually carry it with your day and that's good enough. The Subway Proust readings are on hold right now, 
But Natalie's goal is still to finish reading all seven volumes, because after all... The seventh book is when he's finding the time again. I would like to finish that journey one day. In the meantime, she still has the memory of reading In Search of Lost Time on subway trains. Proust might even describe the experience as being fixed forever in memory, the general excitement of being in a strange place, of doing unusual things. Ten cars for Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly J. McDeed. Thanks, Holly, for that great piece about one of my favorite authors. I'm Josh Landy. With me is my Stanford colleague, Ray Briggs. And today, on our 500th episode, we're compiling our annual summer reading list. And it's about time. So what exactly is time? And what isn't it? For help with these basic yet slippery questions, we turn to physicist Carlo Rovelli, author of Seven Brief Lessons on Physics, and more recently, The Order of Time. So in this new book, Carlo summarizes years of research on the problem of time which he says has fascinated him since childhood. So what is the problem of time? There are many problems of time. <laughs> the first one is that uh, time definitely does not work in the way we usually think about it. Uh, for instance, we think of time as something common uh, all over, so that if we take two clocks and separate the two clocks, when they come back, they, have the, they, they measure the same time. It's just the time passed between separation and uh, and when the two clocks meet again. But that's false. That's only an approximation. If we have precise clocks, we see that uh, clocks measure different times depending where they are. So does that mean that it could be a different time for Josh than for me? Like Absolutely. I mean, I don't know how tall you are, but uh, the one of you, I, I don't want to know. I think Josh is the... taller. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. So Josh brain uh, is going to live uh, uh, a little bit uh, uh, longer than you. So when you meet, you're going to be younger, and he has to be older than, than you. That's a fact. So, I mean, it can be checked in the laboratory. The reason we are not used to this strangeness is because um, in our environment, this phenomenon is not very strong. I mean, you have to go in a bigger planet or near a black hole to, to, for this phenomenon to become very, very, very strong. Another one, uh, which to me is the most striking at all, this is a, a bit harder to describe, but is the fact that the notion of present it's really an approximation. There is no really notion, well-defined notion of present in the, in, in the universe. And, and the thing goes like that. I mean, you and I are having a conversation, and uh, we are in the same time, right? I can hear you now, and you can hear me now. But actually, uh, there is a little delay in our way of communicating, because... Uh, uh, it takes time for any light or signal or phone noise to go from me to you. So I actually hear you a little bit in the past. And if I look around me, I see things in the past, right? Because time, light takes time to fly from the things to my eye. So present literally doesn't mean anything. If you ask what is happening right now in a different galaxy, there is no meaning into that, and any meaning that you can give to the now there, it's contradicted by some obvious situation that makes it nonsense. Okay, so there's no present, but surely there's a past and a future, right? So isn't, isn't the present just the stuff that's not past and the stuff that's not future? There is a here and now, right? For each of us, there's a here and now, and there's my past and my future, uh, which are definitely different than your past and your future. So there, there is a relational past and future, of course. There's a past and future for you, meaning uh, everything you can see more or less is your past, and anything I can see more or less is my past. But they don't match. So the effect on, the, on our notion of what it means to be real, it's dramatic, right? If, you, if I want to say that what is real is real now, I'm just lost. doesn't square with, with today's physics. Does, it, does any of this have to do with the binding problem uh, in neuroscience? I mean, you, we have to, our, our minds have to take a variety of sensory input and bind them together into a single representation of things that we take to be happening now. And that, of course, takes a little bit of time. Is that the extension of what we each take to be our present moment, that little window of time in which the various sensory inputs come in and are bound together? I think that uh, uh, the answer is no. And that's one of the key uh, 
themes of my book. Uh, what we mean by time, uh, it's not really the clock time, it's something else. We have memories and uh, uh, we anticipate the future. In fact, according to at least some current neuroscience, that's the, 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 the main thing that our brain does. Our brain accumulates uh, memories and trying to anticipate the future. So for us, the time is this uh, uh, complicated thing about memory, future, integrating signals that arrive. And uh, this is time for us. It's not the time of the clock. Clocks don't, don't have memories, don't think about future. I mean, <laughs> the, 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 uh, this is a very specific thing of, for us humans. So we make a mistake when we try to project uh, um, these complicated experiential times uh, down to physics. And vice versa, we make a mistake by thinking that our experiential time is just the, the time of physics. And, and in philosophy, this is an idea which is, uh, is not new. I mean, Husserl has uh, uh, discussed that a lot along a retention and uh, the, the fact that time and Augustine and Saint Augustine. In fact, I think is a is the great intuition of Saint Augustine when when he says, uh, um, "How is it possible that I hear a musical phrase?" Uh, given the fact that in each moment I'm in one single moment of time, so I should hear one note at a time, what, how do I get the sense of the music? And then he, from that, he goes on saying, well, time for me is really memory and the memory and anticipation. I think it's uh, absolutely right there. It seems like a lot of non-human objects have memories too. Certainly other organisms. So... Uh, trees sort of grow rings and they can be used as historical records. Like rocks kind of erode in one way and don't exactly unerode backwards in the yes. other way. Uh, so it seems like some kind of memory is part of the natural world and not just of us as human beings. How do I square that with, with the idea that sort of memory is a human perspective dependent thing? Time is not one thing. It's a layer of things. And in the macroscopic physical picture, which is not our brain, it's just nature described by macroscopic variables, there is heat, there is temperature, there is uh, thermodynamics, there is entropy that grows, and there are traces. Traces, ah. what, you, what you just mentioned, traces, uh, are absolutely not something that our brain imagines, right? Uh, on the moon, there is a crater, and the crater is there because uh, a meteorite fell on the moon in the past, not in the future. So that's a trace. So traces are out there, no doubt. Uh, but traces are a funny thing because uh, if you think microscopically, if you, if you knew all the details of the phenomena, using the equation of motion, you can evolve back and forth. So in the present, there's perfect knowledge of the past and the future, while traces is only the past. So what is it? How is it possible? You mentioned entropy, and entropy is usually the fact that gets physicists thinking that, in fact, time does have an arrow, does have a direction, right? That yeah. The universe yeah. started in a low entropy state, and we're gradually heading towards higher entropy states, and that's why your, your glass breaks when you drop it. It doesn't magically yeah. usually get put back together. Um, it just makes me wonder whether, in fact, there aren't some things we can say objectively about time, right? So maybe I can't say that there's an objective present moment, but isn't there something like an objective shape of time, right? That time has an arrow wherever you are in the universe. It's not that it's subjective what we say about the world. It's not also subjective either what we say about um, that involves ourselves. Uh, a sunrise is not a subjective thing. It's just a perspectival thing. It's different. Um, right. I think the, the mistake we make about time is that uh, we have an intuition. Okay, I have an intuition about what time is. It flows, it passes, past, future, present, blah, blah. Either it is like that or it's not like that. It's mysterious. It's, uh, um, it's, it's illusory. It doesn't exist. Uh, uh, there isn't one thing about time. Time, there's many things about time. The arrow is just one of them. The, the distinction between past and future is just one of them. The fact of flowing is another one. The fact of being common for all of them is another one. Each one of these aspects of what we call time is rooted in a different uh, uh, level 
in a different uh, set of phenomena, in a different signs that we use for describing these phenomena. Um, if you go down, down to quantum gravity, we don't use any time variable at all. We only use relative variables. So. And if I may conclude, uh, one last part of this pile of things, which is time. Eh? Um, there is a, there's something that surprised me a lot. I, I read in, um, in Reichenbach, which is a, so an analytical philosophy, and I read in, in Heidegger, which is the opposite camp of philosophy, the same comment, eh? which is that uh, every time you talk about time, you, there is something emotionally uh, non-neutral for us in time. And I think this is true. Uh, strongly, because time interests us, all of us, right? It touches us. You ask me about time, we'll talk about time. And I think that uh, this emotion of time uh, is not a uh, something that confuses us, we should get rid to understand better. It's a very major part uh, of what time is uh, for us, uh, because we are, we as human beings are clearly time beings, right? We live in time, we think in time, we are, we are a process that uh, involves temporality, otherwise we wouldn't exist. And not only that, but we, we anticipate the future, we, we know we're gonna die. So time is what makes us lose things, get things. And this emotion of time, I think, is again, one core aspect of what time is for us. Carla Rovelli, author of The Order of Time and other very readable books on physics. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today we're celebrating our 500th episode by putting together our annual summer reading list all about time. Coming up, we'll talk to poet Jane Hirschfield and political scientist Elizabeth Cohen about their recent books that investigate time in surprising ways. More time for summer reading when Philosophy Talk continues. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. It's our 500th episode, Time for Summer Reading. I'm Josh Landy, here with my Stanford colleague, Ray Briggs. Time isn't just a physical thing. It's also got political value. Deadlines, waiting periods, and political calendars are just some of the ways that the state can exercise power over its citizens. Elizabeth Cohen is professor of political science at Syracuse University and author of The Political Value of Time. We asked her to tell us more. The political value of time very often uh, treats time as a form of currency that uh, citizens can use to transact with the state. So our time can have value if we are allowed to wait a certain amount of time to acquire certain types of rights or goods that we want from the state. And the state can make us uh, uh, wait for things or structure our time using deadlines in ways that kind of um, constrain our power or our ability to um, acquire things that we want to acquire, engage in activities we want to engage in. So, you know, deadlines um, can take the form of political calendars in which we schedule elections and get an opportunity to, to weigh in on, on how politics are going. And then we have various waiting periods for citizenship, for um, goods that we want to acquire, and in some cases for getting our rights back if we've committed crimes or been incarcerated, things like that. So the state or corporations or other entities that have power can make us wait for things, uh, mm -hmm. and they can set up these unjust differentials between people who get things fast and people who get things slowly and people who get things at some uncertain time. Uh, what about cases where they give us time, like parental leave? Do you think that's an important case for thinking about the relationship between politics and time? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'd say that parental leave is a case of kind of giving people time. It's um, restructuring what's asked of them in a specific amount of time, in a specific period of time. And there's really interesting things to think about in the context of lifespan, Right, so th there are certain periods of our lives in which we're going to be asked to um, use our time in one way or another and being forced to make ch difficult choices or impossible choices about how we use our time is something that good politics or good political arrangements can prevent or minimize. So I would say that a good parental leave policy is either an employer or the state 
recognizing that we don't have the same temporal needs in all phases of our life and then addressing those competing goods. So I'm persuaded that treating people differently and taking time differently from some rather than others is, is a form of kind of inequality and injustice. How do we fight back when that happens? What should we do about it? <laughs> well, it's that's a really good question. And I, um, I there are many things about this book that I, I felt like really satisfied by. Like I, I locked up the argument nicely to, to my satisfaction. And the question of kind of resistance was not among those. <laughs> because, of course, we can use our time. I mean, there are cases in which you see people with very little power trying to use one of the only things they have, which is time, to fight back. So things like um, strikes and um, deliberate slowdowns or um, using time to obstruct the state. The thing is the power differential is so great, very often the state can wait out anybody who's um, on a hunger strike or attempting to stop working um, long enough to get the state to pay attention. It is very difficult, even when they're organized, um, for individuals to use their time, kind of battle back using their time. I'm also curious about sort of more institutional forms of collective action. So should it be illegal to have differential waiting periods based on a protected characteristic? Is that a thing that's a possibility? Yeah, I think that is a really important and terrific question. I think that you know, we come to use time to transact in liberal democracies in part because we tell ourselves these things about time, like everybody has time, time, you know, proceeds at the same rate for everybody. Um, it's It has this egalitarian um, guise, like it looks egalitarian. And so uh, in a liberal democracy, using time, like making people wait rather than paying for citizenship or, or doing a blood test to show that they're the right kind of person, it actually is probably more egalitarian than some of the other options, even though time itself is, of course, not an equalizer because we're not all similarly situated in res with respect to like where we are in the life cycle or how much we need to get something at a particular moment. But the thing about that idea of egalitarianism is that once we've committed to we're doing this because it's fairer and it's more equal, then when you treat people's time differently for no good reason, right? They're similarly situated people and you treat their time differently, you're engaging in a pretty, I think, profound form of unfairness. And in this book, I, I go through and, and look at kind of discussions about why we make people wait for things. And something that comes up over and over again is that something happens during time that affects people's character that they develop in ways that matter and qualify them for things they weren't qualified for at an earlier point in time. So if you make somebody wait longer than some other similarly situated person, you're you're actually saying that their character did not develop, that they don't they're impervious to processes that actually affect other people. And and that's a really really strong and I think um not good statement for the state to be making about similarly situated people. So I'm actually really surprised at that as a rationale for making people wait, because my guess at a rationale, my first sort of impulse was to think it was pragmatic. Like I, I am sometimes on the phone with my insurance for a long time, and you just can't get health care to everybody at the same time because you don't have enough people to do it. So you put people in a line for that reason, which doesn't have anything to do with the value of anybody's character. Uh, so I'm... I'm a little bit like, I don't know, it seems almost moralistic to think that you should make people wait uh, to develop their character if you can do things faster for them. Yeah. Um, but again, this is why citizenship and naturalization is such a revealing case. And it's why I spend so much time thinking about it, because citizenship is not a scarce good. We don't have to go like hire more HR people. Um, to make more citizenship for people. Like we could not impose a five-year waiting period for lawful permanent residents to naturalize. None of those waiting periods have anything to do with scarcity or um, a queue or anything like what would cause a health insurance company to make you wait for something. And yet we do. So Elizabeth, I just wanted to flip the question on its head and, and ask 
how not just how politics can affect time, but how time can affect politics. I, I think about things like, for example, generational change. You know, you you bang your head against the brick wall over and over again and never get anywhere. And then, you know, you wake up 20 years later and the problem just went away because you got a new generation. <laughs> so what do you think about the effect, uh, not just of politics on time, but of time on politics? Yeah, so the, the generational question really intrigues me. And I spend a lot of time in this book talking about um, Condorcet and a little bit less, but um, sometime talking about Jefferson as well, because they were two thinkers who really were quite taken with the significance of organizing time and politics. So a political calendar in which elections had stages and, and the stages were the right amount of time for the activity that was occurring, whether it was deliberation or solitary thought or collective decision making. They both really thought schedules and calendars had to be just right for a democracy to work. And one of the things they agreed on was that with generational change should come automatic political change. So um, Jefferson, I think, put it the most pithily. He said that the dead should not rule over the living, meaning we better give people the opportunity to totally revise the Constitution once, uh, uh, and he had actuarial calculations for this once the amount the lifespan of the those who had written the constitution had passed because the dead you know should not rule over the living and if the living don't constitute themselves then they are ruled over by the dead so generational change now often means what you're describing which is we get used to certain things and then other things you know vanish before we were ready for them to vanish but I don't think we consider enough that with the passage of time, probably our right to have a say in politics may uh, strengthen or attenuate. Elizabeth Cohen from Syracuse University, author of The Political Value of Time. Today, we're compiling Philosophy Talk's annual summer reading list, and it's about time. You go to sleep in one room and wake in another. That's the title of a poem by Jane Hirschfield in our new collection, Ledger. Just one of the poems there offering a creative meditation on time. Jane is a prolific poet and essayist and one of our favorite past guests. So we asked her about the relationship between time and poetry. I would say there are three main ways that poetry conducts itself in, in regard to time. Uh, the first way is that it embodies it. And uh, that is because thought and feeling and language and poetry are always married to music. And so a poem is an instrument that's only available to us inside of time. Sentences are linear. Uh, the discovery and epiphany of poems and the emotional shift in them take place over time. And sound work in poetry has everything to do with time. It elasticizes it, elongates it, quickens it, turns it. And poems remember themselves within time with their repetition of rhyme and meter and the echoes that are there, even in poems that are free verse and don't seem so formal. The second thing poems do, in a way they are like all art, an attempt to obviate time. So a poem written 300 or 3000 years ago speaks right into this moment's experience. And there are, you know, 4,000-year-old Sumerian aphorisms, uh, borrowed bread is not returned. That's as alive today as it was 4,000 years ago. And one of the things which has been traveling with me during this time of pandemic and shelter and unknowable future are 400-year-old words from Shakespeare, be not afeard, the isle is full of noises. And then the third relationship that poems have to time is they address it and investigate it quite directly. You know, every good love poem bows to the knowledge that love ends and transience and perishability and time. They are simply among our most central human perplexities. You know, grief looks backward, hope looks forward. And this is an axis of our experienced lives. You've, you've got a, a new collection, Ledger, and would you be willing to read us a poem from that collection? I'd be glad to. Um, 
And I, I think I'm going to give you one which I would say is particularly acrobatic in its relationship to time, which is looking at the present from the point of view of the future as if the present were become the past. And I think this is one of the ways that uh, the lens of language allows you to see and feel things acutely and clearly. So the poem is called Let Them Not Say. Let them not say we did not see it, we saw. Let them not say we did not hear it, we heard. Let them not say they did not taste it, we ate, we trembled. Let them not say it was not spoken, not written. We spoke, we witnessed with voices and hands. Let them not say they did nothing. We did not enough. Let them say, as they must say something, a kerosene beauty, it burned. Let them say we warmed ourselves by it, read by its light, praised, and it burned. And that, of course, is a poem about the crisis of climate and biosphere. And it is imagining a future in which we did not wake up, in which we did not change our ways. One thing about Let Them Not Say that I noticed that was sort of strange to me is that the tone of the poem is almost fatalistic. So it it assumes that uh, sort of we saw is a fixed thing in the past. And it assumes that like it burned is a fixed thing in the past, but it it sort of uh, acts like what people say about it is changeable in a way that the event is not. So it's let them not say as though that exactly. could be legislated. Exactly. It's a plea to the present looked at from the point of view of the future. And so that's what I meant when I said this is a poem which is particularly acrobatic in its relationship to time. There's all these loop-de-loops and twists and, you know, the arms are run under the knees and it's hanging from a trapeze. Um, and yet people seem to understand it perfectly well. It's a poem that was published um, uh, the day of the inauguration in 2017, and it went wildly viral because everybody understood what it was saying. You know, let them not say they did nothing. It, it sounds like that connects back to what you were saying about the way in which poetry shapes time, because here you have a poem that keeps uh, repeating over and over again, like a tolling bell, let them not say, let them not say, let them not say. And in one sense, of course, that's just a repeated call to arms. But I wonder if it's also, you know, taking something whose temporal scale is almost unimaginable and, well, making it a little bit more manageable because the poem itself keeps repeating this thing. It keeps bringing it back to almost a present moment. Yes, exactly so. And the other thing that it tries to do, um, because poems are always interested in taking the complicated view and not the simple one, it also wants to admit that, you know, this very phenomenon by which we might destroy the world is also for us comfort and beauty right. and ordinary yeah. life, you know. I, I spent years living in a place in the wilderness without electricity with kerosene lamps. You know, I contributed mm. my fair share and more of, of, you know, carbon economy emissions. They were beautiful. And we warm ourselves by it and we read by it. And I think that's very important as an ethical approach to the catastrophe. None of us is innocent. Um, none, none of us partaking of this conversation on this day right now has not contributed more than our fair share uh, to the emptying of the reservoir of the world's resilience. And the question is, will, will resilience be enough to answer back and restore if we do our part? Not enough time for all that I You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're thinking about the nature of time and discussing books about time for our annual summer reading list, our 500th episode. Coming up, more with poet Jane Hirschfield, plus Stanford philosopher Jorah Dannenberg with a time-centric story to recommend when Philosophy Talk continues.
Welcome back. I'm Josh Landy, and it's time for summer reading on Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ray Briggs. Today, it's our 500th episode, and we're thinking about books that question the concept of time. Let's return to our conversation with poet and essayist Jane Hirschfield. Here she reads a poem from her new collection, Ledger, entitled Hazal for the End of Time. Break anything. A window, a pie crust, a glacier. It will break open. A voice cannot speak, cannot sing, without lips, teeth, lamina propria coming open. Some breakage can hardly be named, barely be spoken. Rains stopped, roof said. Fires, forests, cities, cellars peeled open. Tears stopped, eyes said. An unhearable music fell instead from them. A clarinet stripped of its breathing, the cello abandoned. The violin grieving, a hand too long empty held open. The imperial piano, its 89th, 90th, 91st strings, unsummoned, unwoken. Watching, listening, was like that, the low, wordless humming of being unwoven. Fish vanished, bees vanished, bats whitened, arctic ice opened. Hands wanted more time, hands thought we had time, spending time's rivers, its meadows, its mountains, its instruments tuning their silence, its deep mantle broken. Earth stumbled within and outside us. Orca, thistle, kestrel withheld their instruction. Rock said, burning ones, pry your own blindness open. Death said, now I too am orphan. That is the bleakest poem I have ever written and the darkest thought I have ever thought the end of that poem. The poem terrified me when I wrote it. What the poem is imagining is if death does not exist, if no living beings exist to stand witness to time, that is what the end of time would look like. It is an unimaginable abyss. And the poem frightened me so much that I had to write another one afterwards in apology for it because I felt like I was being rude to the beauty of existence all around us by allowing such despair to come onto the page. I'm, I'm kind of wondering if like the view of time and of meaning here is sort of like both like wonderful and terrible at the same time. That last line, like you said, suggests that death having meaning and time having meaning is just a matter of our, our human perspective. So if, if those go away, it kind of like in some sense, like it all goes away. Well, and a matter also of all living creatures, not just humans, but you know, if death were an orphan, it wouldn't just be because we humans were gone, it would be because the last microbe was gone. And, and that's a pretty dark thought. I mean, I know it's not going to happen. There are lots of resilient species on the earth, like rats and cockroaches, and possibly even us, that will survive, you know, almost any imaginal debacle short of, you know, when, when the sun actually explodes. But it is impossible for us to imagine non-time. Our, our psyches can't do it. We can't get there. But we can imagine non-life because every single one of us is going to die and every one of us has lost someone to death. And so this is how I'm trying to terrify myself and the rest of us into behaving a little differently. Practical philosophy, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> I mean, to be sure, it's a bleak thought, but it's, this is an extraordinary poem. It's really one of my very favorites in the collection. And one of the things I love about it is the way in which the, the rhymes work. Um, yes. At least to my ear, it almost feels like y you can feel in the flesh entropy happening. You can feel mm. the flesh of disintegration. The first two lines rhyme so perfectly, it's the same word, open, open. Yes. But then you start to get other words that rhyme pretty well, spoken and open. That's not a perfect rhyme, but it's pretty close. 
Uh, but then you have From Them, which is a little bit weaker. Thank and you. And by the end, you're getting noticing. things like Outside Us and Instruction. And, and it's as though you feel the world falling apart. Did I, did I get that right? You got that absolutely perfectly right. That is what the experience of writing this poem was enacting within me. The falling away, the falling apart, that it is... Um, imitating with its sounds the process it is attempting to conjure. Um, so it's an onomatopoetic poem. And it was written by the sound. You know, some poems are written, all my poems are written by musicality and by a speaking voice that has rhythms and sound awareness in it. This poem was written by its rhymes. There are things in it that would not have been said except for having to find the words that made the sound echo and then find what led to them so that you heard that rhyme in from them. Thank you for honoring my art by recognizing so well the material and medium that makes it alive. Poet Jane Hirschfield. Her new collection of poems is called Ledger. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. And today we're compiling a summer reading list all about time. So Josh, I know you're a big fan of the writer Ted Chang, and there's a short story of his that you've taught with our Stanford colleague, Jorah Dannenberg. That's right. It's called Story of Your Life, and it got adapted into the movie Arrival, which Jorah and I have taught together in our film and philosophy class. But the original short story by Ted Chang, that's one of the great stories about time. Here's Jorah to tell us more. So the narrator of the story is a woman named Louise, who's a linguist, and Louise is telling this story to her daughter, and in fact, recounting to her daughter important events from her daughter's life. And right from the beginning, there's something really kind of curious about time going on in the telling of this story, because it's not entirely clear where Louise stands in relation to the events that she's describing. The story begins with the decision that Louise and her husband Gary make to have a child, but Louise is also remembering events that she's kind of looking forward to after that point. Yeah, she's, she's remembering she, the future, right? That's I right. remember and when and she, you'll be a month old. Exactly. And she's also experiencing, as if in the present, uh, things that have happened in the past prior to that point. And, and what we learn is that Louise has worked as a translator with this race of aliens that have arrived on Earth. And the aliens, in fact, experience time in this fundamentally different way than human beings do. They experience time all at once. They perceive events simultaneously. And rather than seeing them as kind of ordered in terms of prior causes and later effects, they instead perceive things as ordered in terms of purposes or goals. They have a kind of teleologically structured form of consciousness. And it turns out that Louise, through learning the heptapod language, they're called heptapods, these aliens, has also come to experience time in something like the way that these heptapods do, at least partly. Her own form of consciousness is kind of a mashup between the human way of experiencing time sequentially uh, and this alien heptapod way of experiencing time simultaneously. So Jorah, that reminds me a bit of Kurt Vonnegut's novel Slaughterhouse-Five, which Ted Chang mentions as an inspiration. Yeah, and I'll say I, I love both of these pieces of fiction, Slaughterhouse-Five and The Story of Your Life. One thing that I really appreciate about Story of Your Life is that um, Slaughterhouse-Five tends to make it sound a little appealing to live in this kind of alternative form of consciousness where you experience everything all at once. There's a lot of focus on, you know, sort of not being sad about people who have died because you can kind of be experiencing them as alive at any point. Um, I, I tend to think that the story of your life is in a way much more ambiguous and or invites a little bit more ambivalence about what it would be like to be in relation to the world in this fundamentally different way. So there's a certain kind of serenity that comes with this extratemporal uh, frame of mind, right? And you can see all of time at once. And so, yes, there are some moments where things are going badly, but don't forget, you know, there are other moments where things are going well. So how is it that story of your life takes this frame of mind that seems so appealing and turns into something more ambiguous? In a way, I think the kind of experience that Louise has is 
in a way much more uneven than what you describe as this, uh, you know, kind of tranquility that uh, might come from having a kind of simultaneous experience of everything. Um, Louise experiences the highs and the lows, and uh, she has a, a kind of melancholic uh, quality to her, which in the film, I think, is even more pronounced in the portrayal of the character by Amy Adams. But even in the story, um, there's, of course, a real tragedy at the heart of this story, too, which we haven't yet mentioned, which is that um, Louise's daughter, who the story is being told to, dies young. She dies, we learn in the story, at the age of 25 in a rock climbing accident. And one of the kind of tragic facts about Louise's experience is that she knows this for the entirety of her daughter's life and in some sense has to look forward to it. But because of the way in which her relation to time is described as being kind of altered in this more alien way, she doesn't really have a choice in the matter. She's, uh, she's neither bound by the future nor free in any sense of freedom that we would recognize. And so she kind of, in addition to reliving all of the good moments with her daughter and enjoying all of the time with her, is also kind of perpetually experiencing the tragedy and the loss. And that's certainly one of the more striking ways in which I think the kind of ambiguity gets in there. So wait, if you could foresee the death of your child, why wouldn't you just stop it? Yeah, I, I mean, that's the question in some sense. And um, there's a quite long reflection in the middle of the story on uh, the way in which knowledge of the future would affect one's decision making. And the, the first thought is exactly the one that you express, Ray. Um, if I knew the future, wouldn't I have the power to change it by choosing different actions than the ones that I would be predicted to make? But the way in which this story tries to resolve this paradox is by suggesting that for the heptapods and for Louise, insofar as they experience time in this fundamentally different way, it's not quite the case that they understand themselves as free to choose their actions, nor do they understand themselves as determined or bound by the future. They instead see themselves as something more like enacting the future through a kind of recognition of history's purposes, so to speak. And I think we're invited to think that in some ways, this is such a fundamentally different mode of experience that it's not altogether clear that we could completely comprehend it. Although I think Chang does some wonderful things to try to get us as close as possible in, in imagining what it might be like. I want to come back to something you were saying earlier about the beautiful ambiguity in this story, um, which I think is also a little bit in Slaughterhouse-Five. I mean, so both of these uh, fictions offer us a sense of consolation for death, right? Death is a terrible thing. And yet, if you could see uh, all of time like the heptopods do, you would see that actually uh, everything has a reason, right? There's a kind of teleological order to things. Um, and yet, and here's where part of the ambiguity comes in for me, here we are reading the story. And as we read the story, we read it sequentially. We don't see the story all at once. We get one page after another. And that's kind of awesome because that's the way we get to be surprised. And that's the way there gets to be suspense and drama. And we love those things. And we couldn't have any of that if we lived outside of time, if, we, if the future felt to us just like the present. Is that part of the ambiguity for you too, Jorah? Yeah, I think this is a... a wonderful point about the story. Um, and I'll do you one better in a way, which is that I think this is a story that requests, in fact, demands to be read more than once, in part because uh, the first time you read it, of course, you don't know what's going to happen in the story and you're surprised and you're um, shocked and you're pleasantly delighted and you're sad as the events unfold in the course of the story. Just as you said, uh, you can't help but experience the events in time as you read. But of course, once you get to the end of the story and you know how the story goes, you can go right back to the beginning of it and you can reread it. And when you reread it, you're actually, you might think in a little bit more like the position of Louise or the heptapods. You now know something that you didn't know the first time through about the 
arrangement of the events in the story and how they might serve the purposes of the story, you can, so to speak, come a little closer to kind of seeing things all at once uh, rather than experiencing them sequentially. But the way Chang depicts Louise's experiences, the flip side of that is that the tragedies are also kind of ever present for her. And so there's a kind of melancholic, tragic quality to her experience that I think um, invites us to to wonder whether whether it would be better, whether it would be worse, or I'm tempted to say, and I think the story at least puts this on the table as an option, whether that comparison really in the end can be fully made sense of for us, whether it might just be that this is so fundamentally different than the way in which we experience things that our concepts like better and worse, and for that matter, the sorts of concepts that we use to evaluate choices as good or bad choices, well or poorly made, whether those concepts can even carry over to this alternative way of experiencing things. It might just be so fundamentally different that um, it doesn't make sense to call it better or worse. It's just, it's just incommensurable in that way. Stanford philosopher Jora Dannenberg on Ted Chang's Story of Your Life. You can find all the books we've talked about on today's show, along with other timely recommendations from our listeners, over at our website, philosophytalk.org. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of KALW Local Public Radio San Francisco and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2020. Our executive producer is Tina Pamantuan. The senior producer is Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Cindy Prince-Baum is our director of marketing. Thanks also to Merle Kessler, Angela Johnston, and Lauren Schechter. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University and from the partners at our online community of thinkers. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program did not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you too can become a partner in our community of thinkers. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking.